I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. feel that like i should have been the guy to lead into that being who we are is just have a, a nice bottle of whiskey and dump it over i mean i have some bourbon but i don't have wild turkey i don't know what i was thinking we should have got a corporate sponsor mark for this four episode series <laughs> when i was in nashville uh manuel enriquez mel halcone outfitters longtime friend he always brings me a bottle of tequila and uh all of our mexican hunts i mean whether it's gold whether it's oscillated when we come in he always goes to the ice box and pulls out the tequila. Uh-huh. And so it's always special this time of year, especially when I, when I see Manuel, he gave me a new kind of tequila. I'm not sure what it is because it's clear like vodka. And, uh, uh, he said, it's some really powerful stuff. I'm almost afraid to drink it. I- <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Turkey hunting in Mexico would be a blast. I've never even, never even, I've had a couple of buddies that have done it. But I've never even it's not it's not on my radar yet. Well, he started actually started today with oscillated hunters coming in down at Campeche. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. Are, are those birds a lot different to hunt than a state's bird, like an eastern? I mean Well, I'm, you know, first of all, turkeys are turkeys. Mm-hmm. But there's certainly differences when it comes to, you know, the oscillated. The oscillated is a different species altogether. You know, mm-hmm. we hunt the five species here, but uh, when you go to the Yucatan or Guatemala or Belize, uh, that bird has no beard. He's certainly the most colorful. Most times you're hunting him in the jungle, although uh, they've really expanded out into some of the farmlands that the Mennonites have. Mm-hmm. And uh, their voices are different. Uh, what would be comparable to a gobble, they refer to as singing. And to me, it's like a sandhill crane. It starts off like a rough grouse drumming and an explosion of air, like a sandhill crane. And uh, when you hear it, you'll never forget it. And it gets just as exciting. Nobody's perfected a call. So most of the the guys and outfitters that are are guiding hunters, uh, they're using a recorded uh, version of that gobbler singing. And what they will do, they'll come in. I took uh, Jerry McPherson of uh, Montana decoys to make me a, a strutter that I took down there, folded up and carried through the jungle real easily, set that thing up, and we start playing, you know, that singing over that, you know, that amplified version, man. They come in to fight just like they're coming in a Navy and X strutter. And, uh, man, it's really, it's really, really cool. You know, years ago, most oscillated uh, outfitters, uh, they'd take their client in after dark, they'd roost the turkey and they'd shoot him out of a tree under a spotlight. And I mean, Look, man, I, that's not my cup of tea. 
Yeah. And they're so much fun to hunt. And I've hunted them in the farmland. I've hunted them in the jungle. To me, the jungle is like one of the most exciting places because you don't know the sounds that you hear when you first go there. You think, my God, is that a lion? Is it going to eat me up? <laughs> you know, when you hear howler monkeys and you hear parrots coming through the trees and sounds like you've never seen or heard. Yeah. Man, it's, it's, it's pretty wild, but I just love it. I really, really do. And when you're hunting, you know, you're hunting a turkey acts the same way. Mm-hmm. It looks different mm-hmm. and his voice is different, but you know, you're hunting a turkey. Wow. That, that something that they just look cool. That's kind of like a, uh, like a, they're like peacock looking a little bit, right? Well, certainly the iridescence, the colors that they have are the most brilliant of all the turkeys that exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question, nothing even comes close to it. You know, they're not nearly as big. In fact, they're half the size of a big old North Missouri gobbler. Twelve and a half pounds is a pretty big one. They don't mm-hmm. have beards. But the spurs on there, I think they must grow at a faster rate than what St. Eastern turkey would. Yeah. And, uh, you know, two-inch spur is not uncommon. <laughs> Just daggers. like a, It's like they a claw. Daggers. Mark, they have you ever killed one of those? I have not. I've, I've not hunted uh, really outside of the Midwest for turkeys. I don't travel a tremendous amount for birds. I've, I've hunted probably 15 or so states, but I've never gone uh, – to, to Mexico or, or certainly down there to, to kill one. So yeah, it could be because of the kind of record you have, uh, you know, a lot of States, they, they're on the lookout for Martin Drew. If he crossed the state lines <laughs> going out of the country, I'm not sure, you know, his passport would even get him into another country. <laughs> we wouldn't. Well, I already, I already like where this is going. So we've kind of like started without actually starting, which is, this is great. So well, here's my intro after we've already talked a little bit about the, cause that's fascinating to me. Like that's always interesting. It's almost like hunting a different planet is from what it sounds like, but working class on deer cast, we're in the middle of the Turkey OG series and our guest on this second installment, Rob Keck. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Hey Kurt, glad to be here. My good friend, Mark, I'll tell you what, we go back a long way and a lot of, a lot of turkeys have bit the dust since we first met. And, uh, yeah, it's been just a great story and the return of the wild turkey. Just happy to be here. Well, I appreciate it. I was telling Mark before we started doing this series, like I'm, I don't really get nervous often when we do podcasts. We've done a lot of them, but there's certain ones that I've been kind of like nervous or I get a little tongue tied during the conversational flow because I want it to sound good. I want it to seem like everything's going smooth. But when you look at some of the credentials and what we have in this Turkey OG series that we're doing, I mean, four decades of hunting experience, 27 years as the CEO of National Wild Turkey Federation. I mean, the, what you've done for con- conservation and the wild turkey is just absolutely incredible. And, and I want to get into that. Um, but I think first, if, if you guys don't mind, I want to mention how you guys messed with me right before we started this <laughs> episode, because I went from being nervous to a little more comfortable instantly. But uh, I don't know. Should we talk about it? I think we kind of have to now that I brought sure. it up. Absolutely. Kurt, before this started, and rightfully so, he said, I'm really nervous about, you know, interviewing Rob. I mean, he's such a OG. And I said, yeah, he's he is the OG of, of modern day turkey hunting. As far as I'm concerned, if I picked one guy, it's Rob Keck. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I'm really nervous about this. So ahead of the call, I texted Rob and I said, call him Bert rather than Kurt. <laughs> And ask him how long this is going to take and go, who are you again? And, and Rob did all of that to a T. And Kurt is just spitting out information. I'm like, oh, God. 
like he had got called on in school and he really wasn't aware of what the teacher was talking about. But it was awesome. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be respectful, you know? So I'm like, well, I didn't expect you to know who I am at all, but, but you know, when we first started podcasting, you know, we're just kind of like begging for guests at the beginning, you know? So that I've had that before. So I'm just like, Oh yeah, I'll just explain it. But also I'm like, Whoo, this is going to be a spicy episode if this is how it's going already the whole way. So, so thank you for doing that though. I do appreciate that. Cause that just shows that we're, we're cut from the same cloth. So, cause I do that. To one of my buddies. <laughs> so thanks Mark. And you can cut right back if you want to. I don't care. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'll get a little more comfortable to do that. I'm, I'm so excited about this. And I said it when, when we were interviewing Paul and I'm going to say it with Ronnie cuz and also Stoltz now with Rob, these guys are heroes of mine and they're also all dear friends of mine. And when you asked me to kind of get the guests together for this, this series, like it was no question who they were going to be. In fact, Tracy and I were at dinner one night and I said, Kurt has asked me to do an OG series of Turkey hunters. And to a T she goes, Rob Keck, Paul Butsky, Steve Stoltz, Cuz Strickland, and she named all of my heroes. Like, she knows who they are because I talk about them. Like, she had the exact same list I did. So it's an honor to have, have you on, Rob, and be a part of this. And I wanted guests from different uh, views of the wild turkey. And, and Rob's going to be our a little bit of history and a little bit of tactic, but a lot on conservation. Paul was the tough birds because he's had so much experience hunting so many different places. And he was our tough bird guy. Stoltz is going to be our voice and vocabulary guy. Nobody better than to do it. That somebody that's been calling with relativity from the seventies all the way up till the twenties. And then cause he's going to be video then versus now. Cause he was one of the original guys out there with a video camera. So uh, without further ado, I'm, I'm tickled to have Rob as part of that elite crew and, and also honored to call him a, a dear friend. Well, I'm the one that's honored, really. Thanks for the kind words. And, uh, you know, none of this stuff happens by accident. You know, you surround yourself with great people and you learn from each and every one of them. You know, you've had an impact, Mark, on the entire industry, not just in whitetails, but before that with wild turkeys. And uh, you know, I appreciate you. I appreciate the messages, the way you present it. I mean, we've got a, a public out there today that is hungry for knowledge. And, uh, you know, when we first started out, I mean, there were so many people that were brand new to turkey hunting. And, uh, you know, a lot of us, we just sort of learned on our own. And then we shared it, whether it was through video or seminars or contests or you name it. And you were one of those guys. You're one of my heroes as well. Uh, I appreciate you. And I love you, buddy. I appreciate that. Same here. Love you, too. Well, Rob, I think probably the first thing we dive into from that is, I kind of want to talk and Mark and I, you know, converse of this, like the state of the wild Turkey. Um, back then when you started hunting, you know, the middle range and then to now and to the future, uh, what, what has the bit been the big change that you've seen in the wild Turkey from when you first started going until now? You know, I took my first Turkey in the fall of 1963. In fact, it was the day after John F. Kennedy was killed. Wow. And it was back at a time when in the state of Pennsylvania, we had fall hunting, but no spring hunting. And oh, uh, there were just a handful of states that actually had spring turkey hunting season. But let me go back even further before my time hunting. I think we've got to talk a little bit about that history. You know, a lot of people today, when they come in, they just take for granted turkeys have always been there. Really, they weren't. In fact, when we came into the 20th century, 
by the mid-1920s that Turkey was probably at its lowest point population-wise. You know, people, uh, it might have been 30,000 birds at that time, but people lived off the land, market hunting. That word conservation wasn't part of their vocabulary. You know, in some parts of the country, the upper Midwest, New England, uh, by the late 1800s, turkeys were completely gone. Mm -hmm. They weren't there. North Missouri, Iowa, you know, Illinois. I mean, it was amazing. But people lived off the land. And, uh, you know, we just thought there was an endless supply of wild turkeys. And that just wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, there are people like Theodore Roosevelt, George Bird Grinnell, Gifford Pinchot, Otto Leopold, and others realized the nation needed to change because it wasn't just wild turkeys that were going to low numbers, but all wildlife. People were living off the land. That's how they fed, you know, hungry families. And, you know, restoration, uh, as we came in then to the 40s and 50s, it, uh, it began with pen-reared turkeys, like in Pennsylvania and Tennessee. But they found out shortly after that program began that that was not the way to get them and it was in the early 1950s that the development of the cannon net, which was really used to trap waterfowl, was adapted to capturing turkeys. And uh, that trap and transfer method really took off. Missouri was a real leader. So was Florida, coastal South Carolina as well. And uh, I know like Missouri, Florida, you know, by the late 70s, they were about completed with restoration efforts. North Missouri was probably the last to, to get those in. And, uh, you know, by the late 70s, we maybe had, we maybe had uh, 2 million birds. And, you know, that's a tough thing. People always ask, you know, how many turkeys are there? We're going to talk about that in just a second. It's very difficult to census. And so it's just a, it's a calculated wild-ass guess, really. But mm -hmm. somewhere in that 2 million area. And, uh, you know, when I came to the Federation in 1978, there were only 30 states that even had turkey season. So just think about that. I mean, that wasn't, well, maybe it was a long time ago. To me, it's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, that restoration, it continued into the 80s and into the 90s. And, uh, you know, more states were opening seasons. And, uh, you know, we got into the middle, latter 80s. We hit about 3 million up into the 90s, 4 to 6 million. And uh, by 2004, we were about at 7 million turkeys. But again, this was a guess. It was just a calculated guess. But, uh, you know, I had the privilege of, uh, you know, leading the way with the NWTF and accelerating that that opportunity uh, of, of finding turkeys in the backyard where they've been gone for over 100 years. And, uh, you know, we provided transport boxes. We generated money and manpower with our volunteers, our chapters. We brokered deals. Uh, with outright gifts and with trades of maybe turkeys for river otters or turkeys for antelope or whatever it may happen to be. In fact, we even brokered a deal with uh, with Sonora, Mexico, where we brought gold turkeys into Arizona, which was the upper tip of the gold range. And uh, that whole program was called Target 2000. And what we were trying to do was to fill all that unoccupied uh, turkey habitat by the year 2000. We got there, I think, 2004, we probably, uh, you know, got to just about every place. But you know what happened? The turkey continued to tell us that we didn't know what we were talking about. I remember places like southern Maine. They said, 
that's as far as those turkeys, part of the original range that those turkeys ever go. Mm-hmm. They, they have moved up river valleys and they're in New Brunswick. New Brunswick's having their first season this year. I remember Minnesota, you know, the lower third, they said, that's the only turkey habitat we got. Turkeys right up to the Canadian border and then into Canada, up into the boreal forest. And so it's been really amazing how the turkey has really changed a lot of the conventional thinking, has changed a lot of what the biologists thought. You know, when I started in 78, the conventional thinking was that you needed to have 10,000 contiguous acres of mixed pine hardwood forests. Well, let me tell you something. Iowa proved it's wrong. Mm-hmm. In Iowa, less than 4% of that land area has timber. We found that the highest densities of eastern turkeys anywhere was in eastern Iowa. So it began to tell us that openings are really important. Then we began to, to really manicure and, and build those openings and plant things that turkeys would like to have to eat. You know, it's just uh, it's really amazing when you think about this bird, which is truly an, a North American bird. We helped bring them into Canada. Virtually all the provinces that border the U.S. now have tur- turkey seasons. We look south of the border in Mexico, whether it's Chihuahua, Sonora, Aquas Calientes, Cahila, uh, Durango. I mean, all of those. And then over in the uh, Yucatan Peninsula with Campeche and down into Guatemala. It's just amazing how the turkey has done. And, uh, you know, as I said, there's no way to really census them, but, uh, you know, it's it's something that we know when they're there, but we also know when they're not there. Mm-hmm. That's something we're experiencing today. And we're going to talk some about that. I know as we, we move along. That's fascinating, man, to be that into turkeys from the beginning, know that history and see like the changes from six, some 63 until now is that's just amazing to me. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that really. And I know Mark could probably wrap his head around it a little more. He'd been turkey hunting a lot longer than I have. But to see it just kind of take over, like in Minnesota, I, I never thought that, t- to me, that thinking is different. Because to be like, oh, yeah, turkeys only live in southern Minnesota, to me, sounds silly right now. But that was like reality at one point. It was. It, in fact, at the beginning of Minnesota, they put Miriam's turkeys in there. Oh, they really? They expanded real quick, and then they crashed just wasn't the habitat we learned a lot along the way mark i know you remember back uh, in the 70s the turkey population in southern missouri i can remember standing on a ridge in texas in shannon county i stood there with earl groves one of my great mentors uh, one of the great turkey hunters uh, uh, of our history we stood on a ridge and i said earl how many turkeys do you think are gobbling right now and he talked real slow he said rob there's so damn many turkeys gobbling, you can't even count them. And that's pretty much the way it was. And, and it was a great time to be a turkey hunter. It really was. It really was. I'm, I'm longing for those days again. Yeah. And actually, I found a little bit of that this past spring. I'm not sure I'm going to tell you where, but I did find <laughs> We might have to talk about that off the podcast. Okay. Off air. Or perhaps when you're in Iowa with me this spring. But okay. if, you, if you listen to that, 10 minutes that Rob gave you, it it gives me chills to think of the knowledge that Rob has, the body of work that 
he has overseen and the growth spurt. Now, if you think about what he said, roughly 2 million up to 7 million, that represents his tenure there at the National Wild Turkey Federation. And he was one guiding and pushing a lot of those buttons to make these programs happen. So a lot of what we see right now in terms of flourishing populations, or at least what we experienced, he was at the charge of all that and he led all that. That's why I was so uh, excited to get him on this podcast because he, he is the OG of, of the modern, modern day. Well, let me say this though, Mark, thanks for the credit. It took a team. I really blessed the good Lord blessed me with the ability to pick good people, people that were passionate about the wild Turkey. I mean, some of the things that these guys that sat on bait sites did, I mean, volunteers, state agency people, I mean, it was always during January, February, and March. Sometimes the weather was just bitter cold. Sometimes the rocket net or the cannon net wouldn't go off. But the dedication that they had, you know, I'll never forget one, one of the instances we were bringing eastern turkeys back into East Texas, which was part of the original range of eastern turkeys. And uh, a fellow by the name of Trammel Crow from Dallas, he sent his Learjet over to Augusta, Georgia. Georgia DNR had trapped, uh, I think there was like 18 turkeys. We had them all boxed up. They met us, uh, the plane met us there in Augusta, Georgia. And uh, all the seats were taken out of this Learjet. And uh, anyway, my ride to Tyler, Texas was stuck in. I just laid in between the turkey boxes. <laughs> and, uh, and we flew to Tyler, Texas, landed there. There was Texas Parks and Wildlife waiting for us. And we got off the plane, a bunch of volunteers. And what a thrill it was to open those boxes and to watch those turkeys go into a, a new home. Uh, you know, some of our guys that went down to Sonora that were trapping wolf turkeys to bring into Arizona. I mean, they were in amongst drug smugglers and cartels. And some of the, I mean, they put their lives on the line. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just, just some amazing stories that go along with that. Stories of heroes that you really never even hear about. I'm so thankful we're hearing them now. Yeah. The level of dedication is, is amazing. And when you, when you guys were going after all this and like this much dedication to the wild Turkey, was there any like pushback of any direction that people just be like, you're crazy. You might be wasting your time doing this. Like, did you have any of that at all? Yeah. I was going to talk about that a little bit later on, but you bring it up. Pushback I had in the early days of the Federation. You know, obviously, there's only 30 states having turkey seasons. And when you looked at the southeast, some of those old-line turkey hunters, states like Alabama, which had the longest spring season of any in the country. And there were people that hated me, hated the NWTF, because they said, all you're doing is making more turkey hunters. You're making the woods more crowded. It took a long time for me to convince some of them. Some of them I never did convince. But there's also more turkeys. I mean, we're we're establishing new populations, but boy, it was tough. I mean, for those first couple of years, I was the Federation. So many of those old line Turkey hunters, man, they didn't want anything to do with NWTF. I mean, they were running it into the ground. So we had some real challenges. And, you know, another challenge that we had, you know, you had to trap birds from one place and move them to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Pennsylvania, for example, you know, some of the barroom talk, well, by gosh, the Pennsylvania Game Commission came in here with the Turkey Federation. They trapped every last turkey out of Potter County, and they sent them to Texas. I mean, none of that was true. You couldn't trap every turkey if you tried to. <laughs> right. But, but 
those were some of the kind of things, you know, that would get out. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's wearing a stack of Bibles. Man, we saw tractor and trailer loads of turkeys being <laughs> taken out of Pennsylvania, sending them over to Missouri. Yeah. I mean, just crazy stuff that you had to, you know, to work through and to try to share with people that, look, that's not it. But I can tell you one of the things that was really cool in some of the states, I'll use the state of Ohio, for example, mm -hmm. every Friday during January, February, and the first part of March was media day. One of the things that I heard so many times, they said, Rob, you've got to unlock the best kept secret of NWTF and moving these turkeys. So what we did, we made sure that we captured turkeys that would be available to be released on that Friday. We brought in school kids. We brought in politicians. We brought in people with disabilities. We brought in all kinds of stakeholders and uh, allowed them to open those boxes, release those. I remember in Utah, we did it. I mean, we had a had a, a an outdoor class that was there. Outdoor Life was uh, also one of the sponsors of that. Man, it was the backdrop was beautiful. We had seven devil snow-capped mountains in the background. And I'll never forget the... Uh, the uh, president of the school board, who was also a commissioner on the Utah DNR, said, Rob, this is one of the best things that's ever happened to us out here because we involved everybody. Mm -hmm. Never forget southeastern Ohio on a cold January morning, probably single digits. He was Speaker of the House. He had on his brown cotton Carhartt insulated coveralls, he took his hen turkey out of a box, and I put it into his arms. And, uh, the anchor for Channel 8 out of Cincinnati jammed that microphone up underneath his, his chin and said, Mr. Speaker, what do you think about today? He looked into that camera and he said, my granddaddy would be proud of me. And it said everything. And so we took and amplified that. I built a communications department where we had, you know, five magazines, three television shows. I mean, we did all kinds of stuff online to try to unlock this great story of conservation. That's been one of the travesties that I've seen across the board. Imagine if we would have involved people from all walks of life when we brought back whitetail mm -hmm. or, you know, antelope or black bears or whatever. And, uh, you know, the American public thinks a lot of this starts in a petting zoo. You know, I'll never forget. It was during the hanging Chad days when, uh, George W. Bush and Gore, they were in that uh, real close tight election. It was all down in Florida, the hanging chads. And uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, he was interviewed by Barbara Walters. He said, what did you like least about being the president? He thought for a minute and he looked at the camera. He said, was pardoning that dumb white domestic turkey at Thanksgiving. <laughs> and what and one of the things I tried, and it was unsuccessful, I tried it through several administrations, and I, we came so close so many times. I wanted the President of the United States at Thanksgiving to be part of a turkey release. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came close with Bush. I came close with Trump. I came close with so many, and it just, it just didn't quite happen. And I still, to this day, if, if there's any disappointment, it was that. Because I wanted the American public to understand these turkeys didn't go to the petting zoo. They didn't come from Disney World. They came from the wild. And it was hunters that paid the way for all this to happen. You know, we have improved the quality of life for all Americans. Who didn't enjoy driving down a country road and seeing a herd of deer, a flock of turkeys, geese overhead? You don't have to be a hunter. 
to really enjoy and appreciate. And uh, we've got to do a better job at standing up and telling the story of conservation as hunters. Because hunting is conservation. We've got to do that in every opportunity that we can. Whether it's on national news. I mean, we've got our own national holiday, Thanksgiving. I mean, think about it. I think the only thing that maybe comes close to that is Easter. Oh, is there Rabbits Unlimited? I mean, maybe they could do something there for money. <laughs> anyway, we've got to tell that story. We've got to be smart the way we tell those stories. And, Mark, I know you do that through all of your different vehicles of, of outdoor television online, but we can't do enough of it. Mm-hmm. But I, I hear what you're saying, and we try to, but I've also seen, I think, an erosion of that message from people spreading messages that, not of their own fault, but they're just not as educated as, as they need to be. The, the media message used to be controlled. It used to be a few magazines and a few TV shows. And yeah. by and large, those that were spreading the message were educated to the point that they were informational. And yeah. now all of a sudden, it's more of a shotgun approach through YouTube and, and Instagram and Facebook. And it's kind of like that politics too, right? Just because yeah, somebody just because somebody has an opinion and they write it down doesn't mean it's right. And yeah. there's a lot of opinions out there that I read and I just shake my head out and I go, they're yeah. dead wrong. And yet they're putting it out there and there might be 10,000 likes on it or 20,000 mm-hmm. views. And, and it's just this big, big mishmash of incorrect information out there. And yeah. uh, it's disappointing for me to see, honestly. Yeah. We know we've, we've enjoyed the return of the wild turkey, but you know, Mark, one of the things I know you wanted to talk about, some of the factors that, uh, you know, that, that are causing the sharp decline in wild turkey. Because, you know, since the mid-2000s, you know, this great return we had started going the other way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I know last spring right here in Edgefield County, South Carolina, a place that uh, I never had a problem here in Turkey Gobble. And it was tough. It was really tough. And I know that a lot of people around the country had the same problem. Uh, I did find some other places in the state, though, where uh, there were a few more turkeys, and uh, I could hear a few more turkeys gobble. You know, the bottom line uh, of a most recent report that was delivered at the NWTF convention by uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, he's a leading researcher from the University of Georgia. You know, when you look at what's causing it, he said, we really don't know for sure. And uh, there's numerous factors that uh, could be and, and are contributing to these declines. And, uh, you know, it's maybe not just one factor. There's a multitude of things that are happening out there on the landscape. And, uh, you know, I'll just name a few of those. Things like disease, some of the places where maybe you have a lot of poultry farms and that litter is spread out across the fields and it's not cut in. And, uh you know, wild turkeys don't eat medicated feed like domestic birds do. And uh, there's some disease transmission that ha- happens there. With others, maybe declines in habitat. Yet in some, uh, maybe there's the overharvest of dominant breeding gobblers early in the season. Or things like weather patterns, like late snows. I know in the Black Hills, I mean, when you start getting snow in June, some of those broods coming off and, you know, they have two feet of snow. I can't tell you how devastating that is. And, uh, you know, in other places, I know, you know, Kansas, Missouri, uh, some of those weather patterns where you've got flooding takes place in June, and those turkeys that nested down in those bottomlands just literally wiped out. And uh, in other places where you get 
heavy extended rains with dropping temperatures, even if they drop just to 50, hypothermia can wipe out a hatch just as well. And, you know, then we look at things like drought. Um, my good friend John Sabati, state chapter president in Hawaii, a place I just love to hunt. He said, Rob, tell hunters when you're at the convention, hold off on coming over. He said, our numbers are way down. And he said, we put it, uh, you know, the blame on the drought. They've had tremendous uh, periods of drought out there during peak hatching time. And those Rio Grands need water and they need that in, in, in hatching. Then we've had things like predation. I mean, just look at the ground nesting predators that we've got out there today. I mean, I wish coon hides would go back up to $30 a piece and trappers would pick up. Mm -hmm. but, you know, you just look at the exploding numbers of raccoons, skunks, possums, other predators, foxes, bobcats, coyotes, and then look at some of the avian predators, crows, hawks, owls, and eagles. I got a picture today of five bald eagles in a field in Kansas They'd nailed a turkey right there. And I've heard this time and time and time again. I'm here crows. Hey, a crows, they're some of the smartest critters out there. They know how to rob a nest. They can watch mm -hmm. that hen leave and they'll watch where she comes back. They'll pick up where it is, open it, just nail the, <laughs> nail the eggs. And so those are taking a toll. And then you look at the last two years of the pandemic. You know, we've brought record numbers of hunters out there. And the result, well, Harvest rates have spiked dramatically during 20 and 21 with, you know, many more uh, uh, record numbers of turkey hunters in the woods. You know, maybe some disturbances of nests. Uh, all these things combined could uh, be probably in one way or another be attached to some of this decline we're seeing. But then look at equipment. Mark, when we started, I mean, decoys were almost unheard of. You look at pop-up blinds. I didn't know anybody that hunted out of a pop-up blind when I started. And then food plots. I mean, you know the attraction of those food plots. And just about anybody can put a pop-up blind on a food plot and put a decoy out and kill a turkey. Yep. It wasn't that way before. We've become more efficient at killing turkeys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with all of that, uh, we've got some real challenges ahead of us. And that's why there's, you know, multiple research projects going on to try to help solve this problem. You know, some of them are funded by the National Wild Turkey Federation. Mossy Oaks putting a lot of money into it, hunting public, turkeys for tomorrow. And, of course, many of the state wildlife agencies and university researchers, uh, you know, they've been, they've been working hard at it. We've got a long way to go because we just don't know what that problem is. Mm -hmm. We need everybody's help everybody's helping trying to help solve this problem uh gosh our brood count some of the piedmont areas of, let's say georgia and south carolina you know back in the 90s it would average a little better than four pulps per hen today it's less than two and uh, when you have that kind of a drop in recruitment i mean it's impacting what uh, we're seeing and experiencing out there and uh Rob, are you are you seeing a, a decline in a certain subspecies of birds more than another? I know it's you kind of mentioned. Yeah, it's pretty much across the board. Now, the one exception I've seen, I can't talk about statewide. South Florida, their their population been hanging in there pretty strong, and uh, I guided down there a number of times last spring, and you know I talked to a lot of outfitters, a lot of hunters, and the word I got is that uh, they've got. 
good populations of turkeys, but uh, find pockets. Mm-hmm. I had a pocket last year here in South Carolina along the Savannah River that uh, the last week of the season, you couldn't count the number of turkeys. Yet an hour and a half away from there, I couldn't hear a turkey gobble in pockets in different places and uh you know i think any combination of those those factors that i mentioned could impact regional population a lot of unknowns there Mm -hmm. is there one subspecies of bird that is known to be a little hardier or one that's a little more you know susceptible to disease or just pressure or stress or is it pretty standard some that are easier to kill than others. Yeah. But, uh, but they all seem fitted to their environments. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's all they're just a product of their environment. If they get in the wrong habitat, they're going to be really, really challenged. And, uh, you know, we've seen it with quail also. I mean, turkeys aren't the only one that have been really challenged recently. I know we've seen in places like Texas, for example, when they get a lot of rain. Those rios do real well. Mm-hmm. When it's drought, those... Uh, uh, reproduction is just way off, and it's almost the same way with quail in Texas. The, the other drop-off that I see so much and read about is just songbirds in general. They're yeah. down. Uh, so there's a lot of people, as as Rob mentioned, there's a lot of research projects trying to figure out just what the heck is going on out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I, like Rob and, and like Dr. Chamberlain, believe it is multifactorial. There's a lot of things that are now working against them that maybe they didn't have working against them, you know, it just as short as two decades ago or three decades yeah. ago. Yeah. It's super interesting to think about. Um, it's sad to think about that, you know, especially with all the work that's put in. So I get the the urgency to, to get it figured out. Um, and it's something that I think, well, it's something I'm glad we're talking about to make more people aware, because I think in a lot of areas, there's a, a lot of people who just don't know or don't think about that or don't yeah. realize it yet, you know? Sure. Well, you know, the obvious question is, and I'm sure there's viewers, listeners out there right now asking, what can I do as a hunter? I mean, and I think everybody should be asking that question. Well, you know, my response would be first and foremost, support your state wildlife agency. Some of the hard decisions that they're having to make, uh, you know, they're trying to make the right kind of moves that uh, are going to try to attempt to solve this, this declining number of turkeys. As you might imagine, many of these decisions become very, very unpopular. You know, change is hard to accept no matter how and where it is. Actions like, well, moving season parameters to later openings, reduce bag limits, staggered opening dates, reduce season length, reduce limits. Uh, or in states like Alabama, the first two weeks of the season this year, you can't use decoys in the first two weeks of the season. You can imagine all those things were unpopular. I know in South Carolina, when we went from five birds to three, a lot of people up in arms about it. I mean, but you need to support those agencies. They're trying to do the right thing. And I think everybody wants to make sure we don't kill the golden the goose that lays the golden egg. Mm-hmm. But, you know, other things that, you know, we can do as, as, as hunters to help, you know, work on habitat improvement projects. A lot of chapters, the NWTF out there that, uh, you know, they're involved with planting projects with nut and uh, fruit bearing shrubs and trees, uh, year round planting and, and uh, the manicuring working of wildlife openings, mm-hmm. uh, controlled burning, 
predator management. Those are kind of things that people can do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, don't just sit back and complain. Try to make a difference. You know, another thing, report poaching. You know, it is amazing. Uh, every year, the Federation recognizes the law enforcement officer of the year. You know, in talking to a lot of those officers this past week when I was in Nashville, I asked them, you know, what's the biggest challenge they face as it relates to turkey? Baiting and it's poaching. And, and in fact, uh, you know, where baiting, there's, baiting is legal in some states, Texas, Kansas, and a few others. But, uh, you know, we need to support our law enforcement in our local area every, every turn that we can. There were three wildlife officers from Mississippi that were, uh, were recognized uh, there at the convention. They broke the largest turkey poaching ring ever in the history uh, of, of wildlife management. Uh, there were multiple individuals that uh, were arrested in this. And uh, those individuals went to, I think, four or five different states but had illegally killed over a hundred different turkeys in one season. Some of that was out of season as well. You know, some of the problems we had with, uh, with Turkey restoration, I'll never forget North Georgia, you know, for a long time, as fast as we were letting those turkeys out of the transport boxes, there were people that were killing them and it was hard to get them reestablished. Then uh, Georgia DNR, they established the tips program, turn in poachers. You know what happened after a while? It began. It became known as turning your partner. But some of those poachers were partners, and uh, you know some of the fines and uh, confiscation of vehicles, related equipment, jail time, all those kind of things. Uh, you know, began to to change some of that. Yeah. And uh, man, I don't understand so, that. I mean, I, I it's happening, but to poach turkeys like that, I mean. I, you can kind of see what, when a deer gets poached, it's like, ah, oh, some people just can't stand the temptation of a big buck on the side of the road and they shoot it with their gun, whatever, you know, that's, I guess the typical poaching scenario, but to shoot all these birds, just to shoot them, it's just, it's just, I'll give, you, I'll give you one even worse than that. Worse than just shooting them. There was one officer that apprehended uh, a poacher. He was going out before the season. And he would ride around, and he covered lots and lots of miles in multiple states. And he would shoot them and let them lay. And what he did, he pulled a feather out of the turkey and put it into the shell, and he kept the shells with the feather in it as his marker for how many he killed. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, what? I don't get it. What person would even think about doing something like killing it and then just letting it lay? I mean, gosh. people have some deep issues, man. That's that's such a bummer to hear that people do it that. Is. It's but, sad to hear. It is sad to hear, and it certainly contributes to to the overall problem. And one of the things that we had Dr. Chamberlain on a couple springs ago uh, with the Hundred Percent Wild podcast with Matt and Tim, and he was going through perhaps some things that I that raised awareness for me. He said it's amazing what's happening when you get this dominant gobbler with say a brood of uh, eight, 10 or a flock of eight or 10 hens. And all of a sudden that gobbler gets killed first week of the season, early season, you know, March 20th down there South. And he said, we're finding that they're not then getting bred. So that's why some of the, the things that Rob talked about a little bit later start 
Yeah. And decoy is not allowed early part of the season. There are some things that are remedial to try and, and reduce that. So we've taken that upon ourselves. And I know in our own hunting, if we see a big dominant gobbler with a bunch of hens, we're like, we're hands off and mm. we're going to let them do their thing because the resource is more important than the yeah. moment, you know, because sure. we want those moments that we seek and we've shared so many times there for future generations. And, and when Dr. Chamberlain told me that it has changed the way I hunt. Mm. Uh, the other thing that we do is make sure if, if we've got attractive ground, we, che- we keep track year in and year out, how many gobblers we're seeing, how many jakes we visually see. So we're managing it much like, a D map or a, a, a managed deer area, we want to know what our turkey population is. So we have an idea. Hey, we were hearing seven birds in here last year, guys. We're only hearing three this year. Or, hey, we were hearing three last year. We had seven or eight Jakes in here. This year we're hearing six. So instead of taking a bird off this property, let's take two, but then let's stop right there. Mm-hmm. So we're actually managing our turkeys. And I think in the past, people didn't really look at it like that. If there was a turkey goblin, that was an invite to come killing. And that we should, we should view it differently going forward based on, on the decline. One other thing I failed to mention that has also been changing, you know, in states like South Carolina, for example, we went from five to three birds. But uh, we also, when we could take five birds, you could kill two in a day. We're just across the border into Georgia. Limit was three. You could get all three of them in one day. And I can't tell you the number of guys, and I was guilty of it early on as well. Three gobblers come in and kill all three of them. I mean, that has got to change, and that's what is happening now with uh, a number of states. They've made it one bird a day, mm-hmm. and uh, that, you know, these multiple gobblers that you could kill, you've got to space it out now. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest, even in those states where uh, you can kill multiple birds in a day, do what Mark said. If you've got that dominant gobbler coming in with a brood of hens, not a brood, a flock oh, of hens. I said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm repeating you, Mark. Uh, with with that flock of hens, his harem, don't kill him. Let him go. Come back at the end of the season. In fact, I'll talk about that a little bit later. You'll have an opportunity uh, to come back in my favorite time. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about some of favorite things I do at the end of the season while all those hens are nesting and you can get a shot at that long spurred, long bearded gobble. Yep, exactly. What, Hey, one thing I want to talk about a little bit, I've mentioned this quite a bit on the podcast when we talk to other Turkey hunters and stuff on the show. Um, you know, I live in Illinois. Our season is cut off during the day at one o'clock. So we, we can hunt up to one o'clock and we're done. I know, I think Pennsylvania is that way. I'm not sure what other states are, but some you can hunt all day. Some you can hunt till one. Is that part of an effort to kind of relieve pressure off the birds or the hens on the nest? Originally, it was. Wayne Bailey, who was started out as a turkey bob from West Virginia, finished his career in North Carolina. He was the one that uh, started that, and he did it as an air of caution. As we found out with other states, states that, especially in the Midwest, where uh, you could hunt all day, mm-hmm. but uh, it didn't make any difference. And the whole idea was he didn't want to disturb nesting hens in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Well, really, hens are so secretive. I mean, most people, when they're walking through the woods, rarely are they bumping many turkey hens off nests. And, uh, you know, again, it's hard to change things once they're established. 
I'll never forget the state of Virginia, which had been half bait turkey hunting. And uh, uh, I'd taken the director of the state agency with me and uh, uh, had one of the game wardens with us. And three gobblers coming in. It was about five minutes till 12. 12 was the cutoff time. Just out of range, about 70 yards. And uh, we ran out of time. I had the game warden. He was watching the clock. He tapped me on the shoulder. He said, Rob, it's about three minutes till 12. Anyway, I gave it a minute or two, and I tapped the uh, director on the shoulder. I said, I'm going to have to let him go. He said, what? you got to be crazy. He said, if we sit here a little bit longer, we'd kill him. I said, I know we would. But I said, that's your law here. He said, well, I'm going to get it changed. Anyway. <laughs> That's the way said, to do it right the, there. <laughs> one, one of the things that you got to do, you've got to educate people. And we don't always do a good job. If you've told them for 30 years, we're only hunting half days to protect nesting hens. All of a sudden, at the 11th hour, you tack something on a bill that goes through the legislature, make it all day turkey hunting. I can tell you that people are going to come back hard on you. will be maybe that state chapter in the state that it's happening. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. He tacked it on to a bill. And, uh, man, the NWTF members in the state of Virginia, man, they came on him like white on rice, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, they didn't get all-day turkey hunting. But a couple years later, after some education, they made another try again. And so now the last half of the season is all-day hunting. Pennsylvania has also done that. First half of the season, half day. Second half of the season is all-day Mm-hmm. Most states have all day hunting, but I uh, never forget Wayne Bailey after later years, late in his career. He said, gosh, he said, I wish I'd have never started half day hunting anyway. It said it really didn't all the research out there really didn't make much of a difference. You'll find most Turkey hunters they are going to give up before noontime and coming in the afternoon. Most of them just don't go. Of course, Afternoon, especially early season, is one of my favorite times to hunt. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I asked that because there's, you know, I feel like you ask another turkey hunter here in Illinois, hey, how come they cut us off at one? I don't know. Nobody really knows. Or I didn't yeah. feel that anyone actually knew. I would ask, I would ask the question to just kind of shotgun blast people and be like, hey, well, how come one o'clock? I don't know. Hens, I guess. That's kind you of, know, <laughs> you know, in the state of Kentucky, we used a line of thinking that uh, I, I think was spot on. You know, think about it for a little bit. We're trying to recruit hunters. We want to recruit youth. Well, those kids in Kentucky get on a school bus at 7 o'clock, so they can't hunt in the morning unless they play hooky. Yeah. And if it's only half day, they can only hunt Saturday, or in some states, you can hunt Saturday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so what we did in Kentucky, we put it on the back of kids. We put it to the commissioners this way, that, look, if you want to recruit more hunters and you want kids to be able to participate, they could all day hunting. So when they get off the school bus at three o'clock, they can hunt in the afternoon. Yeah. Also benefited, you know, the average working class guy that worked a seven to three shift. Mm-hmm. He couldn't hunt in the mornings except maybe on a weekend. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if you can hunt in the afternoons, he gets off work at three o'clock. He can hunt the afternoon. And I really think it behooves every state fish and wildlife agency to provide as much recreational opportunity for hunters and anglers as possible, mm-hmm. as long as you don't sacrifice the resource. All the data says we're not going to sacrifice the resource if we hunt all day. Yeah, I love that you said it that way because Illinois kind of is a little weird at their seasons. You know, it's not first seasons during the week and you can't hunt past one. So a lot of people who can't take days off, 
don't get to hunt. And then the way the seasons kind of fall, I I think personally they could be kind of swapped around to make it, you know, to where there's more people that can get into turkey hunting. I think that's probably part of the reason why I didn't get as heavily into turkey hunting as a kid growing sure. up in Illinois is because the way some of the seasons lay out. Now I'm not an expert. I don't, I wouldn't really have a, here's the solution to fix this, you know, but I think something could be changed in Illinois, but um, you can sell it on the back of kids. Trust me. Yeah. I mean that right there, it's perfect. Cause it, it applies to me growing up. You know, I didn't get real into it when I was young because it wasn't always there. It wasn't as easy for me to go. You're still young, still young, but I'm not a kid. I'm not, a, well, I guess it depends <laughs> who you ask. I'm not like my daughter's age. Now, if it stays the same, my daughter's going to be skipping school to go hunting with me, but we'll make that work. So, <laughs> but well, I'll be the cool parent. Well, my wife won't care anyway. My kid will skip school to go hunting lots. I'm sure here, <laughs> you know, I think a little known fact about Rob is the fact that he was a world champion caller, state uh, champion caller, U.S. Open champion caller. But the coolest fact about him, he was the first guy to kill turkeys in all 49 states that had a season, as well as birds in these other other places. And one of the and he's a tremendous turkey hunter. Uh, he's a killer. He's been known as a killer for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Along with his conservation, he has a real, real dyed-in-the-wool passion for hunting. And I want to know from Rob just a few things that he's taken away from all of his experiences across 49 states. Imagine that Imagine that body of work uh, to where he could help someone that's listening be more effective and when they're out there afield this spring. First of all, Take the words always and never out of your vocabulary. Because <laughs> as it pertains to turkeys, it just doesn't work that way. Because, you know, every time you're out there, the turkey's going to teach you a new lesson. Just about the time you think you've got it all figured out, that curveball's coming in. It's a swing and a miss. You know, it's the gobble, not the gobble. Makes turkey hunting so special. Just imagine if you took the gobble out of spring hunting, it wouldn't be that much fun. I mean, I've grown up fall hunting and I love fall hunting and a lot of the tactics that go with it. In fact, one of my favorite times to hunt gobblers, long bearded gobblers. I know I shared this with you at one time in January or February where seasons are open and uh, anybody that's ever seen a gobbler come in, a gobbler decoy and know how they just come with reckless abandon. Well, just take and multiply that 25, 50, or 100 long beards coming in to your decoy spread of strutting gobblers. And uh, I always use a submissive Jake in there. They're gobbling, they're strutting, they're fighting, and they can't wait to get into the decoys. I've done it with all the subspecies, I've done it with oscillated. And uh, every time it's gobbles. I had over 60 Osceolas in the decoys on a winter hunt, and it just trumps anything. I mean, it's spring on steroids, yet so few people uh, you know, have really taken advantage of that. Of course, there's not many states where you, you can do it. But anyway, look for opportunities. I think that, uh, you know, having been a fall hunter, and you'd find the same words from my good friend Ray I, that uh, – a fall hunter teaches you to become a more well-rounded turkey hunter. Some of the things that you learn, some of the tactics you use in the fall, you can apply them into the spring. 
you know, I get people ask me all the time, when is the best time to hunt? You know, my answer to that is when you can. When you least suspect it, when maybe you're tired or you want to go in for lunch or what have you, go when you can. Man, I'll tell you what, I've had more good times other than just working them off the roost where they fly up at these odd hours of the day. No, no matter where you hunt, no matter what subspecies that you hunt, turkeys are going to be turkeys. They're going to continue to teach you some things that, uh, you know, many of these writers in modern time that write about turkey hunting, it's not from their own firsthand experience. And uh, I found that some of the things I read just maybe aren't exactly true. You know, even Rios and Miriams, they can humble you on a given day, especially when they're henned up. Any turkey, all those subspecies, even the oscillated, when they're henned up, they become a real challenge. People ask me, what are the toughest turkeys to kill? And something I've learned over those last four decades, you know, having hunted them from sea level to snow melt line up in the Rockies or in Hawaii, toughest are those henned up birds that I find in a flutter, flooded river swamp where those birds uh, are on those little ridges that are up out of the water. There's no roads. There's no food plots. There's no edges. There's no opening. It's just you and him or you and him and his girlfriends. That is the toughest. Let me tell you, you can learn so much by getting in there with them as they're jumping from little ridge to little ridge in that flooded river swamp. Uh, man, I've just, uh, it, to me, it's just one of the, the most satisfying when you do eventually take one of those turkeys, the level of satisfaction, I'm talking primarily Eastern turkeys now, that level of satisfaction is off the chart. You know, I mentioned earlier, afternoon hunting in the early season can be far more productive than early morning after the fly down. You know, so many times you've roosted that turkey, get in there tight on him. You think you got everything, you know, in your power. I mean, everything going your way. You tree call, he cuts you, you sit there and wait, and he pitches down to a hen you didn't even know was there when she flies down. And uh, I have found in that early season, and especially when we were filming for Turkey Call, Turkey Country, get in the game when I was at the Federation. In my afternoon hunts were really productive, but I even found that late in the season. In fact, many times I would schedule my hunts the last couple of days of the season in those given states. One, there wasn't nearly the pressure. Two, that's when I killed a lot of those long spurred gobblers that were henned up all spring long. And uh, man, that level of satisfaction uh, just, uh, man, it, it, uh, it, it's off the charts. You know, another thing, aside from reaping or fanning a dominant gobbler, you know, some of the best odds on killing those dominant gobblers uh, are going to come when they're not hand up. So when is that? Man, that's, that's at the end of the season. I go to Georgia every year at the end of the season. Their season ends May 15th. I go to the low country. And those last couple of days, you can have some amazing, amazing turkey in. I'm talking about Gobblers that uh, just wouldn't even answer, excuse me, on that phone. No, no problem. They just, you know, they wouldn't even answer. Try to kill it. They wouldn't even answer. Man, they come running with reckless abandon, beard swinging, and just 
Oh man. It's just one of my fun times. And, you know, gobbling can really become intense, especially in mountain country when you're on one ridge and the turkey gobbles on the top of the other mountain, 10 minutes, he could be standing there. One of the things that I, I wanted to prove to myself on how good late season hunting was and how many of the Western states close their season before some of the best gobbling ever happens. Good friend Manuel Enriquez down at El Halcón hunted the first week of June, three different years, between seven and 8,000 feet. And uh, it was one of those things where you hit the call, turkey gobbles on the far ridge, 10 minutes, he's standing there with you. I've seen it so many times out in the western part of the country. Never forget 1979, I was in the Black Hills. As with John Howard, at that time he had turkey trot ranch. And uh, anyway, I asked John, the season out there around April 1 to May 1, back in the 70s, when's the best goblin? He said, June 1. I said, what? <laughs> he said, June 1. And I've been out in some of those Rocky Mountain states. Man, that first week of June is unbelievable. And so don't think by waiting to the end of the season that you're going to really have a problem. Uh, man, it's just, uh, it's on top of my list. and something that nobody should ever overlook. Uh, one of the things, too, that I found in hunting in the West out in the Rockies, hunting at snow line, as that snow melt occurs and the first things that green up, that word green becomes a real focal point. You'll follow those Miriams following that snow melt the whole way up that mountain to where, you know, to where that snow is melted. But even here in the Southeast or in the Midwest, mm-hmm. when that season opens, I'm looking for green down in those river bottoms and those creek bottoms. Or if you've planted clover, man, I'll tell you what, clover is like bait to me. I mean, those turkey hens especially, they want that green. They want that protein. And and uh, uh, I keep, keep green on my mind. And I think if you focus on where the green's at, you're going to find that those turkeys are going to be there. Mm-hmm. Particularly if that green is a certain height, they love yes. it you know, right in there. But then all of a yep. sudden, it's a little tall. Then they they may yep. shoot off of it. Yep, they will for sure. Yep. That's why, with like with controlled burns, you know, we do a lot of controlled burning here in the southeast. Mm-hmm. And when that first mm-hmm. rain hits that, and that first green sprouts out, I mean, not only turkeys but whitetails, quail, so many forms of wildlife that love to you know to eat on that on that freshly popped green that's coming yeah. out. Man, it is. It's amazing. And boy, the, you talk about a tough turkey to hunt. You get into one of those burns, and uh, <laughs> that's a challenge, too. Yeah, I like that you mentioned, you know, like some of the mountain birds, like with the Merriams. I got an invite, and I don't know how, I don't know what, when or what the game plan is, but I have an invite to go hunt Merriams for the first time this spring. So in Colorado. So I'm hoping that that pans out and I get out there to be able to chase them around a little bit and kind of yeah. get that experience, you know. Oh, Do man. it, man. If, if you've hunted Easterns your whole life, take those opportunities to go to other states. I've been right. in Colorado a few times, and everything is just so different and new. It, it's, it takes you back to when you first started turkey hunting because yeah. everything's new. The visual is new. The, the mm-hmm. way they sound is new. You know, the echo is new. So yeah. it, uh, it, it's just refreshing to go to new places and have new experiences. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best to get out there. I think I'll be able to pull it off, so. Pull it off as in getting out there. I don't know about killing a bird, but we'll, we'll do our best. Awesome. Well, man, Kurt, I'm telling you, man, I, stop this one. I need Rob. I need you to just 
record some audio books for me so I can just listen to you read an audio book. You're like, you're just a fascinating guy and your voice is just perfect for this stuff, man. And I'm just like, I think this is the least I've talked on any podcast nor wanted to talk. Cause I'm just kind of like hanging out, like getting the history lesson of this stuff. I loved it. So I don't know how long you want to go, but man, I've, you know, Mark threw me a lot of other things like favorite States and, you know, things I do consistently. I mean, things about the federal, I mean, we can go on and on. You, you cut it off wherever you want. What, what are some of your favorite states that you've been to? Not necessarily from the turkey hunting experience, but just from the overall environment. Like, where did you go? Holy cow, that was really cool. I'd say my first trip to Hawaii was unbelievable. I don't even think about Hawaii for turkeys. <laughs> we, were, we were at 6,000 feet. It was before daylight. I'd been with the state chapter president who drove me up there to uh, a campfire. And there were six other individuals there from Hawaii Game and Fish. And, you know, the state of Hawaii is really a melting pot of different Asiatic uh, type peoples. You know, mixtures of Japanese, Chinese, Taiwanese, I mean, just all kinds. And what was really cool, I was the only Caucasian there. But these folks thrilled to the sound of a turkey goblin. So here we were at 6,000 feet. It was full moon. And I saw the moon rays just shimmering across the Pacific. I'm thinking, man, what a what a place was it started as daybreak started to come about. I said, Well, where are we going to go for turkeys? He said, There's turkeys below us, there's turkeys above us, there's turkeys on either side. I said, Really? When I hooted, there were turkeys that gobbled in every direction, and it echoed off that mountain in every direction. And I said, you know, I think I finally arrived in paradise. It was an <laughs> unbelievable experience. I mean, just to be there at, at that elevation, there was frost on the ground. I wasn't expecting frost in Hawaii. Yeah. In fact, I hunted them uh, up at snow line, hunted them right down at sea level. But that experience right there with them and to see those people thrill at the sound of, of that wild turkey and some of the, you know, that vegetation out there in Hawaii just, uh, you know, unlike anything back here in the you know, in the lower 48, it was just really, really spectacular. You know, one of my favorite places to go, though, is, is Kansas. You know, I've hunted there for over three decades. And, uh, you know, they've had liberal bag limits. And I've met so many people. And the, the people part of this has become so special. I mean, I've developed lifelong friendships with, with people where I go back time and time and time again each year looking forward to to being with them and you know just the fact that uh remember when there were no turkeys there the fact that there's turkeys there today and that the people love them they respect them they they honor them and uh you know to appreciate something like that is so special there's one more you know my home state of pennsylvania when I grew up, the lower Susquehanna River Valley had zero turkey. And uh, when I went, of course, to, to travel with the Federation, I saw what uh, the upper Mississippi was like, high fertility, lots of riparian areas, and uh, lots of agriculture. And I remember going to the turkey bombs to Pennsylvania Game Commission said, we need to release turkeys there. Rob, it'll never work. Will. It took him retiring and a new executive director, releasing turkeys there in that southern uh, Susquehanna River Valley and Lancaster, New York County, to where they exploded. 
and to go back on public land above the baseball field where I played Little League Baseball, where there were no turkeys, and to take a turkey, so satisfying. And to get pictures today, I saw some this week uh, when I was in Nashville of flocks of over 100 birds together in a place where there were none. And the place I go back to every year, annually, I go back there to sort of relive my, my childhood days and to thrill into something that I orchestrated to help make happen that so many other people now enjoy. You know, the beauty of the wild turkey, I think, is only equaled or surpassed by the, the beauty of the landscape in which they're found. From the Cypress Swamp to a snow-capped mountain, to the people then that are there that revere this sound, that hang on every note of the wild turkey, gobble the wild turkey, and we share that. I mean, it's a, it's a kindred spirit that uh, more and more people are getting to appreciate and to join in. And that's something that brings so many of us together. Well said. Yeah. Amazing, man. This is awesome. I'm, I'm having more fun talking about on this Turkey series already, Mark, than I thought I would. It's exceeding my expectations already. Uh, Rob, you're a fascinating guy, man. I, I just, I got to sit down and have a, a glass of wild turkey whiskey with you one of these days and just, we'll I just won't say much. I just want to ask a question and have you just learn me stuff, man. And just, I, I just think that would be an amazing experience. This is, uh, Glad to share it. You know, this has been awesome. You know, not sharing it would be a real disservice, uh, the American public. I want to share this great story, this great opportunity. And all of us have to, I mean, there's so many think about the turkey hunters out there that, you know, if they went and shared their great experiences with the general public in this real positive way, mm -hmm. I think we'd gain an awful lot in the hunting community. And people understand that hunting is conservation. It uh -huh. is. You're exactly right, Rob. You're exactly right. And we, we just appreciate everything you've done for conservation, uh, everything you continue to do. And it's been an honor to have you on the podcast. It will be an honor to finally walk in the turkey woods together this spring. Rob and I have never turkey hunted together. We've always been wow. close friends, but we've never had a chance to actually go chase a turkey. So he's coming into my home state of Iowa here, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna get after some late season, fourth season gobblers in Iowa. So very cool. One thing I want to point out, I think this is another tip for people watching, is that. Uh, you know, I try to check regs on every state that I go to because, you know, they're not always consistent one state to the other. That's right. Well, I shoot a 410, a semi-automatic. I shoot a Viper TriStar. And uh, I love to use TSS. TSS has changed the game for so many turkey hunters. And uh, I've come to find out that unless something has just changed, the 410 that I shoot is not legal. Nor is my number nine shot TSS not legal. So I'm going to have to come with a different gun and different ammo, Mark, when I come to Iowa. I would say fly lightly and shoot mine, and you'll be in good shape. We shoot a 20-gauge with Longbeard XR from our dad. Yeah, love it. And you'll be ready to rock and roll. So. Yeah. No, I mean, I shot 20s up until TSS came out, and yep. I became a 410 man. And I just uh, – I love it. I really, really do. But uh, those Longbeard XRs are – I mean, just uh, – they won, they won a lot of the turkey shoot competitions when they come out. So, uh, you know, maybe I'll just have to use your 20. 
Just use that 20. <laughs> we'll have an optic on there and you'll be ready to go. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to use it, but I, I'll bet we will. I'll bet we will too. Yes, sir. Awesome. Kurt, thank you, brother. I appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate your time, man. And thanks for messing with me at the start of this. I really needed that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, guys, I just want to say as I closed out all of my radio shows and television shows, thanks for answering the call. That call to conservation of a rich hunting, fishing, and trapping heritage. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. That's how we close it right there. Thanks, guys. <laughs>